this one seems to be a little bit more hastily written under the, 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 the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it seems as if he's, he's welling up uh, to attack these false teachers. All of chapter 1 is really just this, uh, this warm-up before the attack goes directly against these false teachers. He is worried that these false teachers are going to take God's people, the hearts of God's people, and lure and entice them away and lead them into eternal destruction, to the place of outer gloom where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter is so concerned that these false teachers are going to lead God's people to hell. False teaching creates false hope, and false hope leads to destruction. So if we're going to look at these, we're going to kind of look at this under four headings. The first is the false teachers have destructive heresies, kind of the beginning. Uh, we, we, we first want to jump back and look at the, con- the, con- the connection to the previous chapter. Uh, look at verse 21 of chapter 1. It says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So before he talks about false prophets and false teachers, he immediately says this is what a true prophet was. True prophets speak what is true. They, they pronounce and they declare things that are going to actually happen. It says no prophecy was brought about by someone's own mind, but, but they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the doctrine of inspiration. But you see the transition right there in verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people. Now he's speaking past tense, that there were false prophets that arose among the people. False prophets have been around for a long, long time. There was false prophets, and now there will be false teachers. That's what he goes on to say. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Let's Let's just sink in for a second. There's going to be false teachers. So how do the people of God protect themselves from false teachers? Well, one, I think we should know the Word of God. If we know the true Word, we'll be able to false that which is spot that which is false. But I think we should be in a congregation. And the congregation ultimately is going to be held responsible for allowing their ears to hear true teaching or false teaching. The problem with many churches across our land is that Churches are often full of false converts. And we'll even see that here in the text. There's people who are among the body of Christ who've never really been born again. They may have made a decision. They may have walked an aisle. They may even have been baptized, but they never truly believed. And false believers, false converts, will call false teachers. Because they will want to accumulate for themselves those who are going to say what they want to hear. So we have to be very careful in guarding the membership, guarding the the people of God, making sure that everyone who who enters into communion with our church are truly believers of Christ. That is why I've made a commitment to you as your pastor that when I bring people into membership, the first question, or one of the questions, I ask many, but one of the questions I always ask is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Can you communicate what it means to truly be a Christian? You know, the, the gospel simple is faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. 
It's not a hard question, but if I, if I don't know, if they can't answer that question to, a, to the pastor, well, then they may, they may not be saved. Then we can help them understand the gospel. They may just not understand how to, how to word it, and we want to be careful there. Uh, but the bottom line is that we want to protect the congregation because it says there's going to be false teachers among the body. So what, 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 the, what the picture is here is that someone was brought in to the church and they sprung up and started teaching things that were false. Look at how it goes. These false teachers among you, among the body of Christ, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. I think secretly is a very key word there. Now, I am not in every Sunday school class. I am not in every small group. I am not in every conversation that you have in the hallway. I'm not in conversations that you have when you go for walks. I'm not in conversations that you have over dinner. But you are. Throughout, the, throughout the, this week, you're going to be in conversations with, with the people of God. And you have to be listening for truth. And you have to be, be, be looking for those, those heresies that are, that are springing up. Now, as a pastor, as an elder, we want to confront that. As leaders, we want to see that heresy and we want to go after it uh, like, a, like a mama bear protecting her cubs. Because that's really what a pastor is. We're, we're mama bears protecting our cubs. Right? We want to, we, we're shepherds protecting the sheep. We don't want you to be taken out by the false things in this world. And yet, it's your responsibility to protect one another. So let's say that you're out to, to coffee. And you're having coffee with a member of our congregation. And they start saying things that are false. Just, just kind of working things in, in that are false. If you don't confront it then, that false teaching may be spread to somebody else in the congregation. Who then in turn may spread it to somebody else. Uh, this is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, that, that false teaching spreads like a gangrene. Uh, it's, it's a fungus that, that, that spreads rapidly. So they bring in destructive heresies, and then it gives a, a qualification of what destructive heresies they bring in. It says, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So right there off the bat, it says that these people who are in the church are denying that Jesus Christ bought them. Uh, we, we know several places in Scripture, First uh, Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 4, that Jesus Christ bought the church with his own blood. He purchased the church. That's the, that's the language that we've been looking at on Wednesday night in 1 Timothy 2, 6. Jesus Christ ransomed himself. He gave himself as a, as a price to buy back us from darkness and the grave. And it says here that those who once believed in Christ, once called him Lord, now deny that the master bought them. What they're saying is that they are denying the gospel. They're denying that Jesus Christ paid the price for their sins. That's a pretty big heresy. If we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, if people come into the church and they say there's another way to salvation, there's another way to go to heaven, they are wrong. And they are leading people to darkness to outer gloom, to eternal hell. That's, the, the, that's what's at stake here. Heaven and hell. Do you, do you see the weight there? Do you see the, the, what, what I was preaching at this morning about the flood 
And then Jesus referencing the flood about the coming judgment. Are you ready for that coming judgment? Listen, God does not play when it comes to sin. How can a good God allow sinners into heaven? A perfect place. He can't. These false teachers are bringing upon themselves swift destruction. It's inevitable. Verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So it's interesting here. So these people are denying that Jesus Christ is Lord, denying that he bought them with their own blood. And the very next thing, it says that some are going to follow their sensuality. Meaning there are some who say that you can um, live your life any way you want. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But not just in the, in the party lifestyle, but this is specifically with our bodies, sexually. If you, if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, when it says that you, know, you should not go into a prostitute because Jesus Christ is right there with you. Do you not know that you were bought with a price? These false teachers were saying that you were not bought with a price, and what that does is opens up to sensuality, that you can do anything that you want with your bodies. And it says, because of them, both the false teachers and those who follow the false teachers. There's two groups throughout this text. There are false teachers, and there's those who follow false teachers. Now, you may not know false teachers directly, but I, I'm sure you know those who follow them. That number is a lot larger. And this is because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. People will look at the lives of Christians and say, I want no part of that. There's the way of the truth, the way of righteousness, the way of the Lord, and then there's the way of the world, wickedness, and evil. There's only two paths. There's two ways to live. We're going to live for the glory of God, or we're going to live for this world. So these two things that we see right off the bat, we see their sensuality. They love their sensual pleasures more than they do God. Then verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. So I have a confession. You, those of you who know me well, I, I like tiny houses. It's true. I, just, I like tiny houses. I just finished reading The Hobbit, uh, J.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit with my kids, and my wife found online a, a prefabricated Hobbit house where you could buy these, these pieces and put them together and then put dirt on top of them and live in a, in a cave. I find that fascinating, that prefabricated uh, material. That's basically what Peter is saying here. He is saying false word, fabricated words, that which is not true, that's what, which is made up. It says that in their greed, they will exploit you with fabricated false words. They're speaking the false truth, and they're doing it for money. People who are led by money will say or do anything if it'll get them a dollar. And sadly, many pulpits are, are full of people who are, are greedy for dishonest gain. They will say anything. Not even pulpits. Maybe politicians. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Now here's what he's saying. So listen. You look at them and you think they're fine. You think they're living okay, that they're, they're, they're wealthy, 
and they're living in sensuality. It looks like they have whatever they want. But their destruction is coming. They will reap what they sow. Just not yet. See, the idea of reaping and what you sow is a biblical principle. If we sow a godly life, we will reap godliness. It may not be right away. It may be in the, in the, in the, on the last day. But if you sow to the flesh, you will reap the benefits of the flesh, which ultimately will be destruction. So that first point, these false teachers have destructive heresies. The second point, along with the end of the last one, is that they had destruction coming. Destruction is coming. We see that in verse, beginning of verse 4. We, we see a couple different uh, examples that Peter references in the Old Testament. Uh, verse 4, it says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Uh, if you remember when we preached through 1 Peter uh, 3, the, the, the common view among Jews at the time was Genesis chapter 6, the, the sons of God, that's probably, a, the, most Jews looked at that as a, as a reference to angels. That angels came and, and had um, inappropriate sexual relations with the women of the earth. They, 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 out, they, um, they went beyond the boundaries in which God gave them. And because they did not listen and obey the voice of the Lord, they were cast into hell. So 1 Peter 3, 8, um, 18 and 19 uh, was part of our scripture reading this morning. Is that Jesus Christ, after his resurrection... It says that he descended and he proclaimed to them his victory. He, he announced his victory over them when they were in, um, in hell. That's one of the reasons why, if you've ever done, read the Apostles' Creed, if you were come, come from a liturgical background, it says that Jesus Christ was dead and buried, descended into hell, and rose on the third day. Well, that's where they get that from. This idea of being descended into hell, it comes from languages right, right here. So what Peter is saying is he didn't spare them. He didn't spare the angels, but he judged them. And not only did he judge the, the angels, but he, he judged the, the ancient world with, with the flood. Verse 5. He did not spare the ancient world, but, but preserved Noah. And what does he call of Noah? A herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the earth, upon the world of the ungodly. Uh, it's, it's, when you preach a, a text like I did this morning, uh, Genesis 6 through 9, there is so much information in Genesis. Really, you could, I, could, I could spend probably two years in Genesis because of, there's that much information. I, I, I'm going to try to do the entire book in, in three months, meaning that I'm not going to hit on every point. Uh, so even here, when it called Noah a herald of righteousness, Noah warned the people of his day that the judgment was coming. He warned them. I mean, you would think that they would probably ask him, Hey, Noah. What are you doing? I'm building an ark. Well, why are you building an ark, Noah? Because God is going to flood the earth. Interesting. Turn and did their own thing. He proclaimed the way of the Lord. This is the Lord is righteous. And yet he was saved, and the word of the flood came down upon the ungodly. In verse 6, we see another example. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Do you see that theme all throughout Scripture? These are things that are going to happen to the ungodly. 
Just remember that because I think he makes a, a very clear point at the end of this section of Scripture. In verse 7, if you rescued righteous Lot and greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, uh, for as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials to keep the un- and to keep the unrighteous under punishment to the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. So he's saying directly to the people of God, you who are in the world of false teachers, God will keep you. God will protect you. God will deliver you. God will not let you go into apostasy. He will not let you abandon him. Think back to chapter 1. If you are pursuing righteousness and faith and virtue and godliness and self-control and and steadfastness and, and brotherly love, if you are pursuing those things, they will keep you from falling away. So if you are walking towards Christ, you will never be walking away from him. If you are walking towards him, you're not going to be turning around and going away from him. That's what he's saying here. The righteous who are living a godly life and are going and growing in the, 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 the fruit of the Spirit, they're not going to be left. God's going to rescue from those trials. And conversely, to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So those who think they're okay, like Sodom and Gomorrah, those who think that they're okay, like the angels, the sons of God in Genesis 6, those who think they're okay, and those in Noah's day, eating and, and drinking and marrying and giving each other in Mary, they think they're okay. But there's a day coming. They are already under judgment. And we know that as Christians, don't we? We know that we were once under judgment. The Bible says that we were all children of wrath. We were under God's anger, under God's judgment. But we crossed over. We were rescued from the Lord Jesus Christ from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the beloved Son, where there is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We know that. This is why we have to speak to our neighbors. We have to tell them about the beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In one of my papers for, for, my, for my class, I've been studying a man named Leslie Newbegin. Now, Leslie Newbegin is a, uh, was a missionary in India. Uh, so he served in India probably from uh, post-Civil War to about 1974. Um, he came back uh, to, to England uh, and then wrote a bunch of critiques about the Western Church, kind of challenging the Western Church to, to recover their missionary impulse. We've lived in, in, in Christendom too long and expecting people to honor and serve us, that we need to, to get back to the first century and be missionaries uh, to our world. Well, the interesting thing about Newbegin is that a lot of people who have kind of drifted from the gospel, the, the emerging church movement uh, happened in the late uh, 90s and early 2000s. They claimed Newbegin as their leader. They wanted to follow his, his teaching about being progressive and, and doing all these things for the church. And yet when you, when you read Newbegin's writing, he says the first and most important thing of any church is fidelity to the gospel. We must remain steadfast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel must always be primary in our churches. You can do social justice. You should care for the poor. You should serve our community. But the gospel must always be primary. And you know why? 
Because the gospel is what saves. Serving our community does not save people. It may help them, but the only thing that's going to give people eternal life is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, faith and repentance in Jesus. And in our society, when you are frowned upon from speaking the gospel, it will be much easier to serve someone's needs than to preach the gospel. The gospel will always be offensive. So you have a guy like Joel Osteen, who two years ago would say homosexuality is a sin. To two weeks ago when he says, well, it's not really a sin, it's okay. Well, what happened? Well, cultural Christianity happened. See, and the problem, Al Mohler says, with cultural Christianity, it's always a lot more of the culture than Christianity. That's what's happening to our world. Those people who are, who are there, they think they're fine. They think they're okay. They may have huge churches. They may have full bank accounts. But there's going to come a day when they are going to have to give an account to God. Were you faithful with the gospel I entrusted to you? False teachers teach false hope. And false hope leads people to hell. That's the seriousness in which Peter is writing. So not only do you see this destruction coming to false teachers, we see very clearly why these false teachers are so bad. Really speaking about their sins, their destructive sins. Look at the second half of verse 10. Actually, verse, let's go back to verse 10. It says, And especially those who indulge in lust of defiling passions, which we've already spoken, and despise authority. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't think anybody in this church would argue with me when I would say having, committing adultery is wrong. I don't think anybody would, would question that. Living with a, um, someone who is not your, uh, your, your spouse and engaging in, in physical intimacy, I think everybody here would, would agree that that is just wrong. If you don't agree with that, please come talk to me so I can show you the scriptures. But, he, but notice what it says. It connects that level of perversity, that level of, of um, lawlessness to those who despise authority. We are okay with that one. We're okay with despising authority. We're okay with, with speaking against those who are in authority over us. You know, how do you handle that as a pastor? When you see people in your congregation <clears throat> despising authority, and I'm the authority. How do you deal with that? The Bible says that they're in danger. The Bible says that if they're not careful, their souls may be in danger because they're living against the Lord and against His Word. And yet, it looks like you're power hungry, doesn't it? When someone challenges you and you immediately speak back and say, hey, that's wrong. You're not supposed to, to treat your authorities that way. It sounds power hungry, doesn't it? And yet God has put authorities in his church. He's given elders and deacons to lead the congregation. And it's not just, it's not just the elder, pastor. It's also the deacons. What happens to those who despise the authority of the deacon body? 
Do we say nothing and just let it go? The Bible says is that is those who, who despise authority are, 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 are under the, the, the illusion of false teachers. So when you have coffee, go on walks, eat over meals, and you hear people despising authority, whether that's political authority or authority in your vocation or authority in the church, please let them know the, the, the seriousness that God puts despising authority and sexual immorality right next to each other. And he goes on and says, Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Speaking of angels. Now these false teachers did not even shake or bat an eye to boldly and willfully cast judgment on fallen angels. And look at what the scripture says. Whereas angels who did not fall, who were pure in God's sight, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So he listen, angels who are more powerful and more holy than these false teachers, they won't even speak against fallen angels. And these false teachers will. It shows they're proud, bold, and arrogant. Look at verse 12. I mean, you know, sometimes when you read Scripture, you almost have to look, yeah, he, he just went there. Can you imagine someone getting up today and referring to people in the church this way? But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as wage for their wrongdoing. Those are just strong words. I'm just going to let the, the scriptures bear weight to that. Like irrational animals, they will suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Keep on going in verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. One of the things you notice, the Bible says, and this is the, the danger of our society where we are, is that in, in the past, there used to be certain sins that you didn't do or you didn't talk about unless it was at night. You know, things that only happened in, you know, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. That's when those things happened. Well, now they're in the daytime. They, they revel in these things in the daytime. Uh, you know, not, a few, not, not so many years ago, you know, 6 to 8 o'clock, 6 to 9 o'clock was family TV. They only had certain kind of programs on television. Well, now, if you turn on the TV at any time of the day, you're going to see things that are inappropriate. They revel in the daytime, which should only ever be done in secret or shouldn't be done at all. They are plots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So what he's saying, listen, they are, are rejoicing in how they live even while they eat with you, even as they, as they take the Lord's Supper, as they have the, the love feast with God's people, they are reveling in their deception while they are with you. Do you see the seriousness and the danger of these false teachers? Look at verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery 
The little, little, little Greek, the literal Greek says they have eyes full of adulteress, but they've never seen. They don't know how to process that word, so they changed it to make it smoother to adultery. They're insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. Accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Remember this idea, there's the way of truth, the way of righteousness, and the way of evil. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray. It says they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey, with human voice and restrains the prophet's madness. So Balaam is kind of an interesting character. Uh, Numbers 22 to 24 kind of tells his, his tale. But what we know of Balaam is that Balaam made decisions based upon greed. And what Peter is saying is the false teachers follow the way of Balaam. It's interesting here is that it says Balaam, son of Beor in your text. If you have the, the King James Version, the King James doesn't have Beor, but it has uh, Basor, uh, which is kind of a play on words, which means uh, the son of flesh. What he's saying is that the, the, these false teachers follow the way of the flesh, not the way of the spirit. That's what Peter's point is making. Then it says, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the madness, the prophet's madness. Now remember what I said about when, when the, we know that if you follow wickedness and you live ungodly, you're, you're facing sudden and swift destruction. That's just going to happen. You may not, it may not happen right away, but in the end, that's what's going to happen. So this is what, what, what he's saying here. He's not saying the donkey's speech actually um, prevented Balaam from being mad, because he wasn't really mad in, in terms of crazy. But all wrongdoing is madness. If you know that when you sin, you're going to be judged, then it is madness to go down that path. It is madness. It's going to bring a sudden and swift end. Well, let's close with this last section. False teachers have a destructive end. They have a destructive end. Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by the storm. If you're traveling in the Middle East, the Middle East is hot. I mean, it is really, really hot. So you can imagine walking in the desert and you don't have any water and you're parched and you see a spring and you are, you are so excited. You run over to that spring to get water and there's nothing there. The people were running to these false teachers and Peter's saying, you're not going to be fed there. You're going to go there and you're still going to be hungry. You're still going to be thirsty because they are not teaching the truth. They're empty. Mist driven from a, by a storm. For them, the gloom of outer darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They are just luring them in, enticing those, those folks. You know, there are people who false teachers prey on. 
This is what I got from a commentary uh, about verses 18 and 19. And, and just think, of when I read these assertions from this commentary, who comes to your mind? What person comes to your mind about these false teachers? They spoke with a kind of assertive confidence that made the weak think they must have known what they were talking about. Someone who speaks boldly, even though they have no clue what they're really saying. But the weak-minded, listen. Number two, they appeal to sinful human desires, arguing that made, made it no difference at all if we indulge our sexual appetites to the full. So they're appealing to the lust of the flesh. And lastly, they maintain that their teaching was the pathway to freedom. If you follow me, you'll be free. And only to see that it would lead them to, to bondage. Verse 19. They promised them freedom, but they themselves were slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. We are enslaved to what we obey or what we worship. Those who struggle with alcohol addiction are slaves to alcohol because they live their life for those to get a drink. Those who, who, who are slaves to, who, who give themselves to pornography are slaves to pornography. They worship pornography because that's what, how they live and, and justify their days. See, what God has done for us, the reason why he, he came is that he needed to make a new creation. That's the whole image of the, of the flood. The flood, God destroyed one earth and he caused a new world to come. A, a new creation is a picture that, that our hearts needed to be, to be made clean. We needed to have new desires, new appetites, new, new lusts, lust for him and desires for, for God, not desires for the things of this world. That's why he sent Christ to live and to die, to, to, to go in the grave and to, to be resurrected from the ground, to resurrect our dead hearts when we put our faith in him. Look at verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turned back from the holy commandment and delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So there's one thing that I haven't addressed yet, but I think it's important. So just bear with me for the next five minutes. Um, so in this text, one of the key questions that will always rise is, can you lose your salvation? Can someone lose their salvation? Now, we, we see it right there in, in verse 2-1. Uh, they, they denied their master who bought them. It seems to say that they were once bought, and now they are now denying that he was Bought. The same thing we see down here is that they, they once had the knowledge of Jesus Christ, and now they've been entangled again by the world. So how do you make sense of this? Well, we know from, from Peter's first epistle, First uh, Peter 1.5, it says that we are guarded by faith until the last day. That when we have been born again through the living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance is undefiled, unperishable, and unfading, who is kept in heaven by faith, guarded by God. So our salvation is guarded by Him. And yet you clearly see people here who, who were in the community, and yet they turned their backs on the Lord. 
Then it says those who were in the community and left are actually worse than they were at first. Well, here's, here's what I think Peter's, where Peter's going. I don't think he means that you can lose your salvation. I don't think that if you've been born again by the Spirit of God that you can lose your salvation. I think that the good work that God begins in you, he carries to completion. Okay, I think that's very clear. I think what the Scriptures continue to teach is that if you have true faith, you will persevere. You will persevere to the end. So I think every Christian can agree with that. So whether or not you, you agree with um, once saved, always saved, or you agree that you can lose your salvation, we both agree that you have to make it to the end. Because if you don't make it to the end, then you probably never had it in the beginning. But we learn from 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, which says that those who were of us left us, proving that they were never of us. And the reason why it's, it's worse off if people come to Christ, they give all the signs that they are a believer, they're baptized, they're in, in church, they're faithful, they're learning, they're growing, and then they leave and they turn their back on Christ. The reason that is worse is because those who, who come into Christ and then leave him for sensuality and, and greed and to follow the ways of the world, sometimes it's harder for them to come back. Because it's almost like they've gone through their Christian phase. I've already, I've already been there. I, I, I know that stuff, and I'm not willing to hear it. So what happens to their hearts is their hearts become hard. And they're not willing, the gospel's not willing to penetrate because they've turned their back upon Jesus. Now, we, we sung already tonight, we don't want to turn our backs upon Jesus, but we want to turn our eyes upon Jesus. We want to give everything that we are to Christ. Because if we are heading towards Jesus and we're looking at him and trying to, to become like him and glory in him, we will not follow the ways of this world. And God will not let us fall. And yet the challenge for us, and I, I, probably not even as much for us here in this room, but for the people who we influence in our lives, you know, the Sunday night crowd is the faithful crowd. Okay? You love the word. You're coming back on a Sunday night. Rock and roll. The challenge is for those who, who don't love the Word maybe as much. I'm not saying those who are not here on Sunday night don't love the Word as much, don't mishear me, but there may be a, a something in them that, who may not desire to grow and feed upon the Word. They may be susceptible to false teachers. They may be weak. So what does the Scripture says? Help the weak. Encourage the faint-hearted. So this Word may have been for you. This word may have been for you that you would not follow false teachers. That this, may, this word may have been for you. But this word may have been for somebody else in your life who is following false teachers, who is denying that the Lord bought them, who are living in sensuality and greed and despising authority. Maybe this word was for them and it was for you to graciously and loving confront them with the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, protect us from false teachers. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we